We've been making our way uh, week by week and verse by verse through this remarkable series of exhortations that makes up uh, the 12th chapter of Romans. And we've seen that even though these exhortations seem at first to be somewhat random, just sort of like the Apostle Paul said whatever came to his mind, uh, nevertheless, when you look at them a little more closely, you realize that they all have a basic underlying theme that comes up repeatedly, and that theme is love. In fact, that's the title for this section. Basically, uh, he says, let, let love be without hypocrisy. In the Greek, it's just two words, genuine or unhypocritical love. That's just a, like a title. <clears throat> and then he goes on and gives these various exhortations. Also, we've seen that some of the exhortations fit into groups, and uh, we can be sure that there's that they were put in groups for that purpose. Um, in fact, these uh, some of these first ones here, uh, verse ten: be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Those go together. And verse eleven: not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Those go together. I think it's a case where they rightly divided the verses here. Same thing with verse 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. We'll see that more as we go on, but those all fit together. So there is some pattern here. And we looked uh, last time at two of these exhortations. The first one, we spent more time on the last part of verse 11, serving the Lord. Paul repeatedly refers to himself and other Christians as servants or slaves of Christ. If you don't like the idea of being a slave of Christ, that means you're not a Christian. Uh, It's a great privilege and honor to be a a servant of Jesus Christ. And um, one of the most wonderful things that could ever be said of a person. Now, whenever the Bible says, Moses, the servant of the Lord... That was not something demeaning. That was the highest thing that could have ever been said about Moses. He was the servant of the Lord at that time. And we are servants of Christ. Um, This was the way Paul continually thought about himself. That was his mindset. And he um, repeatedly says that he's a servant of Christ and he says that we are servants of Christ. And if we see ourselves in this way, it makes a difference in our attitude and in our actions and even in our confidence in various situations. If you realize, I belong to Christ. I'm his servant. And the second exhortation that we looked at last week was from the first part of verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Hope has to do with confident, joyful expectation of what we know is coming, even though we don't have it yet. And uh, sometimes also, uh, the Bible talks about the hope, which is speaking of uh, the thing that's coming itself. And so we hope in the hope that's laid up for us, which is heaven or glory to come, the hope that is set before us. Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the hope, with the glory that's set before us. So how are we ever going to be able to uh, 
uh, obey this exhortation to rejoice in hope. Well, the only way is if the Holy Spirit makes real to us what the hope is. And um, that's why Paul prays there in Ephesians 1 for those Ephesians that God might give them the Spirit, Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him that the eyes of their hearts, that's quite a phrase, isn't it? That the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And um, it's something that we just can't, Imagine we cannot fathom what heaven is. The Bible says, Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. So you can't sit around and imagine heaven and get any idea of what heaven is. You think of the Muslim idea of heaven. <clears throat> you know, everybody has all these virgins and um, physical type things. You have, uh, you know, you can have good meals and wonderful grapes and what have you. Well, as Christians, we if we try to think of what heaven might be like, we don't do much better. I've heard people talk about, you know, what are you going to ask Jesus when you get to heaven? You're not going to ask Him anything. You're going to fall down before Him in awe and wonder and worship Him. And the idea of what heaven is, what's heaven like? Well, what's heaven... It, what it's like is when the Holy Spirit comes and gives you a glimpse of such glory and such wonder that you're overwhelmed and your heart is flooded with such joy, joy unspeakable. And uh, a lot of times when God does that, a person can't do anything except say something like, oh, isn't he wonderful, isn't he wonderful, and, you know, amidst sobs. That's a revelation of what's coming. And uh, I remember something Brother Merle said one time. He said, I didn't used to think much about heaven. He said, you know, streets of gold, who wants gold? I don't care about gold anyway. But he said one day God pulled the curtain back, the veil back a little bit, and showed me a glimpse of his glory. And he said, for the, for the first time in my life, I experienced something that I wouldn't mind doing forever, worshiping God. <laughs> Now, Paul prays, and may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way that we can have this hope, by the power of the Spirit. We looked last time at the example of Edward Payson, uh, whom God was pleased to give a glimpse of the riches of the glory of his inheritance. In his case, it was basically on his deathbed when he's suffering a lot of pain, but uh, he got a glimpse of heaven, and uh, the result was that he was rejoicing in hope. He didn't have to try to make himself. It just happens whenever you see a glimpse of heaven. Well, that brings us to the second uh, phrase of verse 12, the one we want to look at today, and that is persevering in tribulation, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Now these two go together. We saw this a little bit last week in Romans 5. He says we exult in hope of the glory of God and then immediately, not only that, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation works perseverance and so on. 
In Romans 8, the same thing. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. And then he's talking about suffering. He talks about hope that is seen is not hope and so on. So the two go right together. Let me just give you one more from 1 Peter 1. Uh, This is a different apostle writing and he says this. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All that's talking about the hope. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice, rejoicing in hope, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You see, the two go together. The hope tied in with the trials and the tribulations. So Paul talks about rejoicing in hope, and he immediately talks about sufferings and tribulation. The New Testament does not teach that Christians are going to have heaven in this world. And any teaching that gets us to the mentality that we're going to have heaven in this world is a lie. It's a deception. It's a false teaching. Just the opposite is what the Bible teaches. And you know, before World War II, or in the midst of all that, Winston Churchill said, I can promise you nothing but, what was it, blood, toil, sweat, and tears, or something in that order. And uh, that's what Jesus says to those who come to Him. And so, this is what He said. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. There's that slave and master again. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. And Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So, we shouldn't be surprised when we fall into various testing. We ought to be surprised when we don't. Our mindset ought to be that we're not looking for heaven in this lifetime We're looking for heaven in the future. We're rejoicing in hope. But in this lifetime, we're expecting trials and difficulties of all sorts because that's what the Bible teaches. Now listen to this, Acts 14, 21 and 22. This is the the apostles. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's true of every believer. Through many tribulations, we must enter. 
In our case, we live in a country where there's uh, not a lot of physical persecution. Sometimes people get, I've known of some open-air preachers that have shed blood in the United States, but uh, in general, you don't have that as much here. But there are intense persecutions that I've seen I've seen wives endure terrible tribulation at the hands of unconverted husbands, mental type stuff that's worse than being beat up. And it's just all who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer. That's just the way it is. And um, sometimes when we downplay what we're going through, uh, it doesn't help us because it has to do with being a Christian in many cases. Some of the trials and the difficult things, even the attacks of Satan upon our minds. So he says, don't be surprised about this. Don't listen to anything that gives you the idea that um, you're going to have heaven on earth uh, because that's not what the Bible says. So Paul tells us here then in verse 12, we're supposed to persevere or patiently endure tribulation. And the Greek word translated tribulation literally is the word pressure or a pressing on. Pressing on. Pressure. Our English word comes from the Latin word that also means the same thing. Pressure or pressing together. And uh, in fact, the instrument that they used to crush grain into flour was called a tribulum. So when you have this tribulum pass over, <laughs> over this grain, that's how you get flour. So the word tribulation does not only mean persecution, but it has to do with any type of thing that presses in and pushes down on our minds and our hearts and our spirits and would try to crush us or push us down. <clears throat> It may be some trying circumstance. It may be sickness. It might be a really hard time financially. It might be problems with some loved one. It might be severe temptation, attacks on our mind, doubts. Um, Just feeling like your life is being pressed down on, that your life is in a vice in some way. Things that are pressing down on us that would try to squeeze us or crush us if they could. And the word translated persevere or endure, um, persevering in tribulation, has to do with remaining under or bearing up under. And uh, it's the same word that comes up many other places in the New Testament in connection with various trials. Let me just give you a few verses. Matthew 10.22, you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured, that's the same word, to the end who will be saved. And Matthew 24.12 and 13, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. 1 Corinthians 13.7, love endures all things. And 2 Timothy 2, 10 and 12, For this reason I endure 
all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So here he's just enduring for the sake of those that are going to be saved. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And then in Hebrews 12, 1-3, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Christian life is not a 50-meter dash or whatever. Do they have 50 meters <laughs> dash? I don't know. 100 meter? <laughs> well, we used to do that in high school, I think, but it was yards anyway. This. But it is, it is a marathon. It's running with endurance, laying aside every weight, and the sin that so easily entangles us, and running with endurance. Christian life is a marathon. It's not a dash, it's a marathon. And uh, so it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. So think of this. There's, beloved, there's a lot in the Christian life that just has to do with enduring. It's just endurance. That's bearing up under, bearing up under. It's supernatural to bear up under things. And some things are long. They go on for a long time. You bear up under it's no small thing just to endure and to keep on and to keep on. I'm not talking about just keep on coming to church. Keep on pressing after the Lord. Keep on serving Him. Keep on following on to know Him. And keep on whenever your faith is tested and whenever prayers don't seem to be answered. Pressing on. Endurance. I mean, think of Abraham. How many years? And he had stumblings, yes, but he grew strong in faith, he endured. <clears throat> you know, if you think about the Boston Marathon, for example, you could say this, couldn't you? Many start well. Many start well. I mean, there's so many, you can't even hardly, <laughs> hardly move, there's so many that start well. But it starts thinning out after a while, doesn't it? And uh, those of you that have been Christians for a while, you have seen many apparently start well. I mean, ones that we thought, uh, here's the wife's a, uh, a Christian, but the husband isn't, and it turns out the wife wasn't really a Christian, and the husband now is. I mean, it's things that have to do with enduring, pressing on, growing, <clears throat> running the race. Well, how are we going to endure or persevere under tribulation and pressure? How are we going to do this? How are we going to endure? How are we going to obey this command? By now you ought to have some idea of what the answer is going to be. How are you going to obey these commands in Romans 12? 
Verses 1 and 2, by having your, by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see reality, in other words. If you see reality, you'll be enabled to endure. The only reason that we fail is when we stop seeing reality and start believing lies. Then we begin to fail. So, seeing reality. What do we have to see reality in or have our minds renewed in and see the truth in? Well, there are two main things that I want us to look at today. First of all, the first way of having our minds renewed in this is what we've already talked about, and that is seeing the reality of heaven, of the hope laid up for us. Um, We talked about that last week, but being able to put on the Uh, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That will enable you to go through all kinds of trials and tribulations if you know what's coming. I think of a lot of the black spirituals, those people were suffering uh, in slavery, and they were looking for the hope. They'd sing about it while they're working. And And those songs are about the hope, you know, Swing low, sweet chariot. They're ready for death. They welcome death, coming forward to, t- to carry me home. And um, uh, Deep River, my home is over Jordan. I don't know if that song, uh, I'll Fly Away, was that originally a black spiritual or not? No more cold iron shackles on my feet. I'll fly away. One bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. And you, you don't... Think of the difference that it would make working out in the hot sun with an iron shackle on you if you're singing that song all day long. I mean, that is putting on what the Bible says, putting on as a helmet the hope of salvation. And the early Christians were doing that. And they were encouraging one another with the fact, this is just a little while. And we're going to shine. Jesus said we would shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. When we really realize that, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. So Paul says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. We've got to remember that. Say, oh, I can't bear this. This is too hard. The Apostle Paul says, our light affliction. Yeah, but he was just an armchair theologian, you know, sitting in his office. (laughs) He wasn't, was he? Let me just read some of it to you again. This is what this is the guy that's saying our light affliction. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, these bodies, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, plural, beaten. How many times was how many times have you been beaten? Uh, three times, five, he says, beaten times without number. <laughs> Often in danger of death. 
If we were in danger of death one time, you know, we'd tell everybody, tell our grandchildren about it 30 years later. (laughs) Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. People often died from one time. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, not, not very many people can talk about that. They left him for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Think of what that would be like. Hanging on maybe to some piece of wood out in the Mediterranean. During the night. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my countrymen. Dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers on the sea. Dangers among false brethren. You know, you wouldn't want to get in any place of danger. You know, it couldn't be God's will to go to a place of danger. Well, it doesn't sound like that, does it? We just got to be sure we're in God's will. That's the thing. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food. Can't you picture him on the front of you know a glossy cover of a Christian magazine? The Apostle Paul. Often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? One more passage. I mean... Isn't it wonderful that uh, Jesus was the servant of all and the apostles were servants of all? I mean, this is real Christianity. It didn't take long for it to get corrupted where you're carrying somebody around on your shoulders. But that wasn't the way it began. One more. 1 Corinthians 4 on this one. He says, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Now he's speaking tongue-in-cheek here. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Now just think of this. Apostles can be characterized as fools, weak, and without honor. This pre- to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Paul was a homeless, <laughs> a homeless person. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, What? We endure. We endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Those are amazing statements. This is the man who says, our light affliction. Our light affliction. All right, so the first way of being able to 
persevere, to keep on, to bear up under tribulation is to realize what's coming. And to put things in the right perspective. And uh, the Apostle Paul could do that because heaven was real to him. That's just what it boils down to. Second way to have our minds renewed in this is to realize that every tribulation, again, we're talking about pressure. Every tribulation that God allows in our lives has a purpose. If we, be, if we really believe that, if we, now, if, you know, um, if our idea is that chance is ruling, you know, what was that poem by Henley, you know, an atheist? He says, uh, in, the, uh, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. The bludgeonings of chance and the fell clutch of circumstance. This is chance ruling everything. If you believe that, you know, then you'll go under. But if you believe that everything that comes into a Christian's life has a purpose, God has a purpose in this. Now think about this. If this isn't true, we might as well quit. Because, I mean, do you really believe that God could not have put the devil and all the demons in hell by now? He could have done it. He could do it this morning. So, what do we look at this? It's not that God doesn't have enough power to do that. He has a reason for not doing it. So, whenever I'm under an attack of some kind, that's something that God has a reason for. You see that? He's got the power. I mean, why would... I mean, if, if you were God, wouldn't you make it so when a person becomes a Christian, they have good health the rest of their life, they never have to be sick and so on? That's what some people try to teach. Why would He not do that? Because He has something more in mind than our personal comfort. He's got some big things in mind. And so when I begin to realize, now wait a minute, these things are for a purpose. He has some goal in view for this trial I'm going through. He has a goal in view that's higher than he could ever have accomplished without this trial. When you begin to realize that, it helps you to bear up under that pressure. What is his goal in view? Well, first of all, His goal is to get glory for Himself out of our lives. You think of Job. God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He's bragging about Job. And He wants to demonstrate His glory in Job's life. And He does. I thought of this uh, a few, maybe a couple weeks ago when I was... uh, reading through this account of <clears throat> Corey Ten Boom. And this is actually taken from uh, a message that she gave, but she's telling about uh, this fellow that betrayed the family. And I think I mentioned this maybe in one of the messages, but <clears throat> uh, let me just read it to you. She first, uh, when she learned, when she was still in concentration camp, when she learned the identity of the man who had betrayed them, And she felt bitterness come up in her heart. And um, 
She cried out to God to forgive her. She says, Do you know when I had repented of that sin, the Lord cleansed my heart with His blood? And a heart cleansed by the blood of Jesus, He fills with the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, love even for enemies. And instead of hating that man, I loved him. And after the war, that man was sentenced to death because he had caused the death of many Dutch people. When I heard that, I wrote him, quote, Your betrayal has meant the death of my old father. He was 84 years old when they brought him into prison. After 10 days, he died. My sister, who died after 10 months of terrible suffering. My brother, he came out alive but a sick man and died through that sickness. And his son who never came back. I myself have suffered terribly in three different prisons, but I have forgiven you, and that is because Jesus is in my heart. And when Jesus tells you to love your enemies, he gives you the love that he demands from you. And I sent that man a New Testament and underlined the way of salvation, and that man wrote me that you could forgive me is such a great miracle that I have said, Jesus, when you give such love in the heart of your followers, there's hope for me. And I have read the Bible that you sent me, that Jesus has died. I have read in the Bible that you sent me, that Jesus has died at the cross for the sins of the whole world. And I have brought my terrible sins to Jesus, and I know that they are forgiven. Your forgiveness has shown me what it means that there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And that man was brought to death that same week. The Dutch put him to death. But he was reconciled with God, and God had used me who had hated him to bring him to the Lord. So, what occurred to me in this, as I was reading through this, it occurred to me, you know, this kind of thing right here may be may have been sufficient reason for God to allow World War II. I mean, God gets more glory out of one thing like this that Satan cannot counterfeit. There's more glory in the ability of someone like this to forgive their enemy and see that enemy come to the Lord. More glory in that one thing than in all the glory Satan got out of the whole war and all the evil and all the atrocities. I mean, we know that he was working all kinds of purposes in the war. But what, I mean, when you just see a little bit of the glory. It's just like when Jesus said, the hour has come, Father, glorify thy Son. We think, oh, he's talking about the resurrection. No, he's talking about the cross. There's more glory in the cross for those with eyes to see than there is in the resurrection. I mean, why does God allow these pressures and these tribulations? Well, He gets great glory out of somebody that's, that's bearing up under it and, and manifesting Christ's likeness in the middle of it. I mean, there's nothing like it. Um. Corey Ten Boom witnessing to that interrogator. Here's a guy that has the power to just write one sentence and she's dead. And she's talking to him about his soul and uh, telling him of his need for God. And he finally ends up asking her or telling her what, to pray for him. Uh, some of you have heard that testimony of Darlene Rose. Uh, Mr. Himaji, or Yamaji, who... Uh, uh, 
kills men. I mean, he's he he has beaten men to death with his cane and kicked them to death with his boots. And she comes in there and begins to witness to him, and the tears are streaming down his face to where he finally goes out of the room. And he never comes back in. He sat in the other room blowing his nose and crying. He never came back into the room. She said, you're not supposed to leave the presence of a Japanese official without him dismissing you. But finally, she said, I had to go out because it was obvious he was never going to come back into the room. <laughs> I mean, there's, you think of all the evils of that, of that death camp where those women were being held, those missionaries. That one event shines brighter than the entire thing in terms of darkness. Marie Monson, held captive by those pirates, that account of those pirates coming into her room and her response to that guy, and she begins to talk to him, and he begins to weep, and finally he goes out of the room weeping. I mean, these are, these are God, as soon as I get into a trial... All of a sudden, there's an opportunity for God to get more glory out of my life than He could have any time prior to that trial. Well, that's a different way of thinking about it. I mean, when you see a Christian bearing up under tribulation and rejoicing and walking with God in the midst of things that go on and on, and they're just bearing up under it, they're being sustained supernaturally, they're they're Christ-like, uh, that's something that shows, that demonstrates the glory of God and the reality of Christ. All right, quickly here, we're talking about the way that our mind is renewed to bear up under tribulation, realizing that God has a purpose in it. First purpose, for His own glory. Second purpose, for our good, to make us more like Christ. Spurgeon said that he had seen people grow more through one sickness and for <laughs> with years of health. I mean, just one sickness. Um, Psalm one nineteen sixty seven. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep Thy word. And in verse seventy one, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn Thy statutes. Listen to James. James says this. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. That's what we're talking about, enduring. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. So God was working good in the end for Job. In Romans 5, 2-4, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and so on. James 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance, we're talking about enduring, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's a purpose. God brings these things into our lives that we might glorify Him and also that He might do good to us to make us into the image of His Son. 
And that's Romans 8.28. All things, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Good in what way? Conformity to the image of Christ. When we really see that, when we really see that the trial, I mean, you take a rough, jagged rock and wrap it up in cotton, it's going to stay rough and jagged from then on. You put it in a situation where it's rubbed against things and uh, abrasion and so on, it becomes smooth. And that's the only way. And finally, God um, has a purpose in these things in our lives in order that we might bless others. And so He's working these things for His glory. He's working them for our conformity to the image of Christ. And He's working these things in our lives. He's putting us through these pressures so that we can help somebody else. First, or 2 Corinthians 1, you remember that? Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God puts us through things so that we can help others. Um, I remember, uh, well, let me just say this. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher there a hundred years ago in in England. And uh, he had bouts of terrible depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it related to the sickness he had, which was gout, and that's one of the side effects. But he would go through times where all he could do was cry, and the deacons would hold his hand and encourage him that everything's going to be all right. And uh, he was in the depths. And in his preaching, one time he mentioned this, and he was telling of some of the things that he had felt and experienced. And a man came up to him afterwards. He said, I didn't know that there was any human being in the whole world besides me that had ever felt like that. Now, why do you suppose God would have Spurgeon be that weak? Why would he let him have gout? You know, I mean, if God loved his children, he wouldn't let them be sick at all. That's what the devil will tell you. But we're not wanting just to have our own comfort. We're wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we're wanting to be a help to other people. So you see that when you see there's reason for it, there's just there's a reason that helps. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, and he wants us to be able to sympathize with other people's weaknesses. Well, um, those are a couple areas anyway that God can renew our minds, help us to see, help us, how do do I bear up under tribulation? Get a glimpse of the reality of what's coming is one way, and the other way is to realize that that pressure, that tribulation has a purpose. Several ways that it has a purpose. May the Lord help us.